Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to be with you again, opening God's Word. We're continuing our series in Deuteronomy this morning, and as Christoph said last week, we're going to start to accelerate a little bit through the book in the coming weeks. So if you are reading along for next week, try and see if you can get through chapters 12 to 16. This morning, though, we're going to be in chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles there, get them open or keep them open to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if you remember back to the start of the series, Christoph explained to us that Deuteronomy is, is this highly structured book. So at the start, we get a section that looks back at what God has done, and that's mirrored at the end by a section looking forward to what God is going to do. And then one step in on either side, we have a section on, on motivations to follow the covenant. And then in the middle, we have a long section on the covenant stipulations, what the, what the covenant requires. So this morning, we are in, in chapter 8, in that, in that second section where we get motivations to keep the covenant. And hopefully you can see that if you, if you look at verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Now, this is referencing the covenant that God made with Abraham by talking about land, seed, and blessing. So, so think, to, think to Abraham. He was promised to enter the land, to, to multiply, and that through his line, blessing would come to the nations. And here we see Moses say, keep the covenant so that you may live, which is the idea of being blessed with life rather than cursed with death, increase, so have descendants, that's the seed, and possess the land, land, seed, and blessing. These Old Testament symbols of being in relationship with God. So what we see here is the motivation to keep the covenant. What we should be wanting to keep the covenant for is that so that you stay in relationship with God. That's the, the summary statement of this chapter. And, and what follows are, are two contrasting circumstances that are going to test their ability to hold on to this covenant. Two different trials that are going to tempt them to, to try and live independently from God rather than to trust and to follow him. So this morning, if you take notes, we're going to look at verses 2 to 10 that spell out what keeping the covenant uh, when we're faced with lack looks like, when we don't have resources. And then we're going to look at verses 11 to 20 and what keeping the covenant looks like when you're faced with plenty, when there's loads of material blessing. And in each scenario, we will see how God calls us to, to remember him and so to choose gratitude over complaining and over entitlement. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So, so let's dive in. Let's look at verse 2 here with me. This section here, you can see it starts with an admonition. To remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness. So immediately what Moses does is he draws our attention to the desert, to the wilderness. It's a symbol of lack, of need. And we can see the purpose of their time in the desert as well there. To humble them and to test them to see what was in their hearts. So would lack cause them to reject God? Would they still be satisfied in him when they didn't have great material blessing? So to set the context, here the Israelites are on the cusp of the promised land, ready to enter the land flowing with milk and honey. After so long waiting for that blessing, it's right here. And then God warns them about facing lack. Maybe some of them are thinking, why would we lack anything? 
We get to live in the promised land. Surely that's the easy streak now, right? And you know, for some of us, we can really easily fall into the same trap of thinking that the Christian life is the good life. That if we follow God, then He is going to reward us and nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. If we follow God's ways, then we're not going to face economic difficulties or, or health issues or, or, or social failures. And this health, wealth, and prosperity thinking can be subtle, but left unchecked, it becomes a terrible heresy that has devastating effects in the church. You can see it today in, in false teachers, in, in some Christian music, and, and almost every Instagram post. God has told us to choose life. And for our culture, life means material blessings. So, so we kind of import that and say, shouldn't we expect comfort and security now that we're following Jesus? Is that the hope that we hold out to the abuse victim? That reading the Bible will stop him hitting you? Or to those facing fuel poverty, that if you give to the church, then God is going to heat your house? Or to the persecuted, that Jesus will swap this cell that you're in for a mansion if you just follow him? To say that, to imply that Christians won't get sick or won't suffer financially or get depressed or struggle with life in general is a vile and evil lie from the enemy. And many of us know it here. Many of us here live from paycheck to, to paycheck. Many of us have health issues or struggle emotionally. Many of us who know and love the Lord know what it is to lack. But the way God talks about lack here tells us it, that it's not a failing. It's not something wrong with you that you need to fix, not something that makes you lesser. So if you're here today and, and you face lack, don't face it with shame. Your worth is not in what you own or what you don't own. It's just a circumstance that you happen to be in. But it is a circumstance that brings its unique temptations. The temptation to grumble, the urge to complain, to compare. Per me, I deserve better. What is God doing? Can I even trust him? The spiral of complaining leads us down and down to a place that we doubt and then stumble. And so our testing in lack can reveal our hearts. Will we trust in something else for our security or will we trust in God? Is our heart directed at God or are we actually more desirous of a better standard of life? God gives his people times of lack as a way of, of refining us of revealing to us the actual state of our hearts so that we can do something about them. It might not seem comfortable, but like the discipline, the discipline of a son, of a father to a son in verse 5, it is done for our good because none of us want to, to sleepwalk into hell. So God sends us these refining fires to, to wake us up and, and to bring us back to him. And so as the people stand on the edge of the promised land, God speaks to them of lack, of times to come that are going to be hard. And then he shows them how to get through them. Look at the command in verse 2. What does it say? Remember. When faced with lack, 
the solution to the, the overwhelming panic and the frustration and the uncertainty about the future is to remember what God has done in the past. It is to add God in to the situation. Because what we see here is that the real danger that God is highlighting for them is not their material state. See how he reminds them in verses 3 and 4 of how he provided for them in the desert with manna, with clothing, with physical protection. We hear the words that Jesus spoke to the devil in the desert. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's showing us that, that, that following God, that hearing his words is as fundamental to life as the food that sustains us. So the real danger here is that the Israelites don't remember, that their hearts turn bitter against God and, and no longer trust in him when they face lack, that they instead trust in the empty promises of the world, the world rather than holding on to what God has set out for them. So God tells them to remember, to hold on to God so they will continue in the covenant, choosing life, choosing gratitude, seeing God in their lives and being thankful for him in that. And to echo this, verses 7 to 10, Moses does something amazing. Moses takes us from the desert to the promised land. Do you see that? Verses 2 to 5 are all about being in the desert. Moses says, when you're there, when you're in the desert, remember God. Remember what he has done and his promises to you. And the result of that, why are we to remember? Why observe the commands? Verse 7, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. And then what we get is this description of the promised land that is almost like Eden itself. Remembering God changes our circumstances from feeling like we are in the desert to feeling like we are in the promised land. Now, be careful here. Don't mishear me. Our lives might not look any different. That's not what God is telling us here or any other place in Scripture. But what he does say is that when we remember the Lord in our hearts, then even in complete material lack, remembering God is like walking with him in Eden again. Material circumstances might not change, but the difference is between grumbling and gratitude, between a heart that is lacking anything and a heart that is filled with worship. And so when faced with lack, God tells us to remember him, to choose gratitude and the path to life rather than focusing upon the, the world around us and just grumbling our way to death. I wonder if you see that choice before you in your life today. That, that's the first test, the first circumstance where God shows us how to keep the covenant. And the next is in verses 11 to 20, what keeping the covenant looks like when we are in plenty. Look with me to verse 11. Here we get a kind of a reiteration of verses 1 and 2, but with a slightly different spin. So we have the repetition of the word to be careful about keeping the commands. And we get another admonition to remember. But this time it's phrased negatively, don't forget. And what I want you to notice here is that where in the first section we had this positive command to remember and to move from the desert to the promised land. Here we get the negative command, don't forget, and we start in the promised land and we move to the desert. 
So it's a structure here in the book that warns us that forgetting God and his, and his covenant moves us from the spiritual promised land, from relationship with God to the desert. See in verse 12, the images of, of being in the land, of having herds grow large, of finding gold and of multiplication. Land, seed, blessing, relationship with God. But then in verse 19, if we forget the covenant, we become like the nations who God is going to drive out, taking away land, seed, and blessing. We can see here that forgetting God results in us forsaking him, in losing that closeness, in moving out of relationship with him. It results in us thinking that, that something else will really satisfy our souls. Just like the lack, plenty can determine what is actually in our hearts. Look with me to verse 12. Otherwise, so if you don't remember God, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God. So we have here are, are two ways in which we can be tempted to forget God and live independently from him. First, in worldly satisfaction. So for years now, the Israelites have been wandering the desert, always looking towards a day when they're going to enter the land, when they would have a permanent home somewhere that they could rest. And for them, that was the, maybe the extent of their desires. C.S. Lewis said that the problem with us is not that our desires are too strong, but that they are too weak. Give us the things of this world that we like in enough quantity and in a timely fashion, and we can become content very quickly. And then we get stuck, smothered by luxury and infected with apathy. Our passion for God just siphoned off by comfort and plenty. We can be so easily satisfied with the things of this world that we wonder why we would even need God. And so we forget him. It's the slow, ambling walk to oblivion that can so easily control our thinking. It's a, a painless death. It's a, a seduction rather than a rape. But the result is the same. We lose our first love. We wake up suddenly wondering what has happened to our faith after years of choosing the world instead of God. The second way that plenty can cause us to forget God is through pride. Look at how Moses reminds them of what God has done for them in verses 15 and 16. He brought you out of slavery. He led you across the desert with all his dangers. He gave you water, food, blessing. But if our hearts are proud... Then we take all that, and as it says in verse 17, we make it about us. We receive blessing and think we deserve it. That it isn't a gift to me, it is mine by right. We become entitled, and rather than living with blessing, we live with toil, choosing bitter pride over gratitude to God. I just wonder if you see that as a trap in front of you today. 
where our verse began talking about blessing and humility before God, it finishes warning against pride before God that leads to the curses. And so there's a really strong double movement of remembering God, bringing us from a spiritual desert to the promised land that pictures this close relationship with him, and then a warning not to forget God and what he has done so that the blessings of being the promised land don't obscure God's glory and cause us to wander back into the spiritual desert without him. And so we are reminded that in whatever circumstances we face, we are to remember God. We are to choose gratitude so that in lack or in plenty, we will follow the Lord. The covenant remembering God It's the guardrail for the road to life, preventing us from veering into despair and grumbling on one side and apathy and pride on the other, so that we see our circumstances as as gifts from God to prepare our hearts to love him more. And so it seems just so simple, doesn't it? Remember God when you're in lack. Don't forget God when you're in plenty. And yet... Our sinful hearts don't want to remember God. We want to complain. We want to grumble. Or maybe we want to feel good and feel proud about ourselves. I'll admit, I mean, it happens almost every week now that there's a really sinful part of me that goes to the petrol pump and watches those numbers slowly climb up and up and up and just wants to yell out in complaint to God where my heart naturally turns to to bitterness and frustration. And if if someone in that moment where I've got the nozzle in the car came up to me and told me, you know, Neil, just remember God, I'll admit it probably wouldn't go well for them. But yet I know, I know that it is in those times of remembering God that's going to give us both perspective and joy. So I want to finish just by thinking a little bit about what this means for us in our daily lives. How do we remember God and so choose gratitude in lack and in plenty? And well, if it's difficult in practice, it's actually really simple in in concept. It's as our verse pictures for us here, simply thinking about what the Lord has done for us and for his people in the past. And what this does is is to soak ourselves in the goodness of God so much so that when lack comes or where plenty tempts us to look away, the rhythm of our hearts is already tuned to the note of gratitude and worship. And so naturally we respond by remembering God. And so how do we do that? Obviously, cultivating a daily and consistent time of of reading the Scriptures, all of the Scriptures, is going to help get that, that big picture into our hearts and into our heads. And look, there are countless reading plans to, to help you, or you get a friend with you to agree to read the Bible, through the Bible together, or you could just start at the start and, and read for as long as it takes you to get through. We're not, we don't need to rehearse all those kind of things. But we can also think about sharing with others, whether that's in our discipleship groups or, or just with friends over coffee or while digging a hole somewhere. However we do it, it's, it's so helpful. Christoph mentioned it last week in regards to children, but it's incredibly valuable for us to hear how God has worked in people's lives as well. And not just for us hearing, but, but for those who have to, to think about it in order to tell people. You might have, have friends here that you've known for years, 
or you might have, have welcomed people here recently, why not ask them? How did you become a Christian? What is God doing in your life? We need to create a culture where it is not an awkward or a weird question. And that might just start this morning with you over tea and coffee afterwards. Whatever strategy we might use, whether it's reading, whether it's talking to people, it's coming to church, whatever we're going to do to help us remember, it is all to help us remember the gospel that we were once dead in our transgressions, that we were, we were caught in the dirt and the mire of our own sin. Having turned our backs on God and chosen the path to death, we have all marched merrily down that path into the cold and the dark, getting lost in the forest of our own sins so that we wander without direction or without hope. But whilst we were busy walking deeper and deeper into that darkness, God sent a light to guide us home. God the Son took on a human nature to come down to us, to pull us from the sucking mud that held us down and washed us clean. He took our stinking rags and gave us his robes of white. And he sent the Spirit to present us before the throne above so that when God looked at us, he doesn't see me, he doesn't see Neil, the filthy sinner, but he sees Jesus, the perfect Savior acceptable and clean. By going to the cross, Jesus took our place, bore the wrath that we deserved, and once and for all paid the price of our sin so that we can be declared justified, even if we still struggle with the effects of sin in our own lives. Even though we had nothing to offer, God brought us in from the cold, brought us before the throne, paid our debts, adopted us into the family, so that we not only have access and relationship with God, but we also have an inheritance as sons and so heirs to glory. And so now we live not as hell-bound rebels, but as citizens of heaven. No longer lost, but knowing that we have a home with our Lord in heaven. Knowing that we will walk with our God once more. No guilt in life, no fear in death, but unity with Christ that leads to an everlasting life. That is what we are to remember. That is what we are to hold on to, not as an entry point into the Christian faith, but as the heartbeat of everything that we do afterwards. It reminds us when we remember that, that God has been so good to us, giving us more than we can imagine more than we can ask for. He has saved us, forgiven us, adopted us, given us his, his church here in a community to walk beside us, revealed himself to us so that if we're able, if we were to think about all he has done, we wouldn't even be able to express how much we have been given. This is what we are trying to cultivate in lack or in plenty. A heart that is so filled with thankfulness that the material lack cannot touch our joy. So grateful for him who walks beside us that all the glittering lights of this world and all our material plenty can't steal our focus. We want this gospel to be so close to us, so present, have sunk so deep into our very bones that we can see all our circumstances around us through gospel lenses. 
that we react to whatever comes our way with a bigger view and see the goodness of God in all our circumstances. That we aren't seduced by the things of this world, but that we can rest knowing that He is enough for every step that we take. That we are constantly overcome by just what God has done for us. And so later on, as, as we go from here, as you move to respond to worship now, remember what God has done for you. Remember how he reached into your life and how he saved you. How he gave you his spirit to live in you and to mold you. And whatever we do, don't forget just how good he is. Don't look for satisfaction anywhere else. May you know that deep in your heart and may it make you so grateful with every breath you take for what God has done for us. Lord, give us neither poverty nor riches. Feed us with the food that is needful for us, lest we be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest we be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Instead, lift our eyes to your glory. Show us what you have done for us, that we might be filled with thankfulness to you who reigns above. And we all say together, Amen. We're going to